Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't dictate, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is, what is today? It is Monday, September 14th, 2009, and this is episode, I think, 276 of the Survival Podcast. As we cruise on toward our 300th episode, how awesome is that, that we're that close to 300 episodes? And um, there's a lot going on I want to talk about today. I'm doing a listener question show today. I uh, have about 10, maybe 11, maybe 12, I'm not even sure, questions here uh, queued up. And I should have time to off, uh, answer them all. This may turn into a long episode because it's pouring rain in Dallas-Fort Worth today. And it was pouring rain on Friday. And it was pouring rain on Saturday. It was pouring rain on Sunday. And here it is Monday, and it's still pouring rain. So we've had a tropical system move into the area, for those who like to hear about the weather. So uh, I think it's going to take me a while to get to work. So that'll give me some extra time to answer more than the usual number of eight questions. All right. Uh, before we do, though, I do have some housekeeping to get into. In the first part of it, um, it's kind of sad. And uh, I was actually going to do an honorary hero of the day today. And I'm going to preempt there until tomorrow because this happened over the weekend. Actually, I think it happened late last night. At least it was officially announced late last night. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of James Wesley Rawls who is uh, an icon in the survivalist industry, um, been around a long time, wrote the book Patriots Surviving the Coming Collapse. He's the author of the Survival Blog, and uh, he's done a lot for the industry. We don't always see eye to eye on certain issues, but who always sees eye to eye on certain issues. But he's a good man, and he's done a lot for the industry. And as someone who's committed, you know, at now at this point committed my my life to uh, to the survival and prepping industry. Anybody else that's done the same as a brother, uh, even if I've never met or spoken to them, which I've never met or spoken to James uh, in my life. But um, James's wife passed away from cancer on uh, on Sunday evening uh, or or Monday morning. I'm not sure which one, based on the email that I got. But apparently, she had been battling cancer for a long time and uh, finally succumbed. And uh, I know James is a man of faith, and he knows he'll see his wife again. Um, So I guess that's good. But I can only imagine the grief um, of losing a spouse that, you know, it it just, about two years ago, my wife, just a little over two years ago now, went through a surgery. I'll talk about someday. Uh, It's just not a day for it. Uh, And... uh, it was pretty severe and pretty serious. She ended up in intensive care for two and a half days after the surgery and then in the hospital for close to a week before I was able to take her home. So this was not a minor thing. And when somebody goes through something that major, the, the thoughts of losing them flood your mind. And uh, it gave me a tiny inkling of what it must be like to actually have it happen. So my sympathy goes out to James, and uh, I'm sure he's posted on his blog about it or one of his, one of his posts have. If you go by the survival blog today, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, and just give them your thoughts and prayers, I'm sure it'll mean a lot. I know recently when something as insignificant as the loss of my dog happened to me, and it's not insignificant to dog owners, and if you're a dog owner here today, but compared to losing a wife, I mean, it's, uh, 
it's, it's, it's a scale of 1 to 10, the dog is a 1 and the wife is 11. Um, it mattered to me when you guys, like, showed up in such numbers and said, hey, we're thinking about you, and I've been there, and I understand, and I've, I feel your pain. So I, I know it'll matter. So if you could do that for me, it would mean a lot. And uh, um, my sympathies go out to, to Mr. Rawls and his family. On that note, let's go again into our regular housekeeping because we do have a show to do. We have to drive on even on a somber note. First of all, make sure you're supporting our advertisers. Our advertisers of the day-to-day are ready-made resources, first of all, and these guys are great. They have a tremendous selection of items and things that you can use to further your preparedness goals. One of the things I always mention with them is make sure you download their solar catalog. Uh, You can learn so much from that. It's absolutely unbelievable how much information is just in that one publication, and it is free. Uh, Next is Tactical Response Gear, James Jager's operation. Um, James offers some of the best training in the industry, some of the best gear in the industry, and he's a solid guy. And one thing I know about James is whenever anybody's ever been for any reason unhappy, he's always made it right because his reputation is more important in the bottom line. That's the kind of guy I like to do business with. So those two sponsors and the rest of our sponsors, please consider giving them your business when you can. They're available, uh, all of them, in the right-hand margin of our website. You'll see their banners in a large stack. Next, please consider joining our forum. Um, Join our forum. You will make relationships. You will forge relationships. You will build a sense of community online, and you will find answers to just about any question you could possibly imagine. Simply go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on forum, and uh, you can sign up there and learn more about our forum and start making some friendships online that I believe you will uh, end up listing as some of your best friendships you've ever made in your life if you give it a shot. Uh, last but not least, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Uh, by joining the Member Support Brigade, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. The cost is as low as I can make the program and feasibly make it operational. It comes out to about $0.20 cents an episode if you, uh, if you contribute to support the show at $50 a year. Included in your membership is a discount to one of our sponsors' discount clubs. I mean, a lifetime discount membership to one of our sponsors' discount clubs. Uh, that would be Safe Castle Royal. Uh, that's a $29 value and a, and a whole list of publications by uh, James Talbot Stevens, who's also an icon in the uh, survival industry. Total retail value is about 70 bucks, so your first year is already covered and taken care of. Uh, from there, let's go ahead and start taking questions today and see what we can do to help folks out there. Got a lot of people asking me a question about the health care debacle, debate. Uh, thing. Not really what my thoughts are on it individually, what I think we should do, but I said in a show a couple or maybe a week ago, um, if you want to know what I think is going to happen, ask me. Because if you don't ask me, I'm not going to go into that. It's too deep of a political rat hole. Well, a lot of people ask, so I'm going to go ahead and answer that question today. And what I'm saying is, what do I think is going to be the outcome of all this debate and all, you know, the, the Republicans are on this side and the Democrats are on that side. It's a big throwdown and the Democrats are wielding, you know, a nuclear option and now they can't do it because Ted Kennedy's seat is vacant and they don't have 60 votes in the Senate and on and on and on. Where Where is this going to lead us to? What's actually going to, what's going to be the outcome? I was going to play Nostradamus here. Well, whenever you see political sides line up, and this doesn't have anything to do with my opinion, folks. I'm just telling you what I think is going to happen, not what I want to happen. Please understand that. Whenever you see both sides line up for a big fight, and they're going to duke it out, man, they're going to throw down with each other. 
and they fight, and you know that the one side could win right away if they really wanted to, because they have enough votes to get it done at least close to what they want. Maybe not exactly what they want, but right now, they can put a health care bill on the president's desk in two weeks if they want to. They've got the votes, they've got the support, it may not have all the things that the people are upset about, right? I don't think that they're going to do that. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think a lot of these things are really upset people, health care for illegals, what they're calling death squads, which is going too far, folks. You make yourself sound stupid when you call them death squads, okay? But end-of-life counseling, that's what it is, and that is going too far. I believe that. I wouldn't call it a death squad. I think you, you just, ugh! God, we, you know, you, you give, and that's the game, to make people react that way. To make people scream, they're going to kill grandma, and they're going to pull the plug on all the old people and everything, right? So they get that going. Now, when you see that fight, you have to ask yourself, what are both sides trying to convince us of simultaneously? What do they agree on? And not so much just what they agree on, but what are they trying to convince America of? Here's what they've been trying to convince America of in this fight. We need health care reform. Everybody agrees. That's what you hear. Every time you hear a Republican objection to the Democrat plan, everybody agrees that we need health care reform. Folks, I don't agree that we need health care. I do not want to reform the current system. I want to do away with it. I think what we have right now is a complete disaster. I've given you my solution in the past. I won't go there now. But my point is not everybody agrees with that. That's why we have the fight. That's why we put on the entertainment. So everybody's going to watch. And in the end, we're going to come out with a compromise bill. The compromise bill will not initially have a public option. It will pave the way for a public option. It will be checkmate on the system, and we will have government enforced and run health care within six years in this country. And at that, by that point, it will be an almost complete monopoly six years from now. It will take that long because they will never get the bill through in a way that will make it happen any faster. That's what's going to happen. I hate it. I don't like it. I think we should fight it at every opportunity. I don't think we should go out screaming eccentric things like they're going to have death squads where they're going to line people up and terminate them. All right, I understand the sentiment there. I understand what people are saying there. But you sound foolish and you get made a fool of. All right? And, and, and you know, but this is what's going to happen. It's all theatrics. I probably wasted your time today. I hope not. But enough people ask if they're going to give you the answer. This is an issue I don't really want to beat up. I don't want to spend a lot of time on. I want to go on to things that are more about prepping, but that's just what I see coming. All right, first question today is a great one. A guy says he found what he thinks is a good deal on uh, some rural land. It's a half of an acre um, for $500, but it's zoned commercial. Does that mean he can't build a residence on it? Um, yes, in most instances, a residential zoning is required to build a single-family residence. The other side of this, though, and something I would caution you with, is that, generally speaking, land zoned commercial is more expensive than land zoned residential. So $500 for a half of an acre is cheap for anything. Right? I mean, that's dirt cheap. First of all, I would say I don't think it's a good bug-out location, just from the information I have for me, which is basically what I just said. Because in a zoned 
commercial, and it's $500 for half of an acre, it's got to be surrounded by people. Now, if you want to tell me where it is and have me look at it, I might change my opinion, but I just might gut there. I mean, you have to make that decision for yourself. But if you have a piece of commercial land selling that inexpensively, there's, there's something wrong there. The, 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 the land is either up to its butt and taxes owed, uh, or has a huge lien against it, so the guy's trying to dump it and get out of it and pass the lien on to somebody else, or it's zoned commercial, but it's in an area where you could never do anything commercially. Like, it's just like there's no traffic. Like, maybe it is really remote. And by some weird quirk, it's been, something's wrong there. And you need to find out what it is. And it's probably not a good piece of land. I would still encourage you to find out what's wrong. Why is it selling that way? Because it'll be an education process. I'd honestly love to know. Uh, if you dig into it and find out what the deal on this property is, if you want to send me the listing, find out if there's any liens or tax against it or something like that, I, because it's an opportunity to learn when you see something that's an aberration like that. It doesn't make any sense. Now, you might send it to me, and based on where it's located, it might be in, like, you know, some some pit of West Texas, uh, some dry, arid piece of land in the middle of an old ghost town, and the, the commercial zoning's been left over from when something was going on there. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But that's not my gut. My gut is something is amiss here, so find out what it is. So, folks, what I want to explain to you, though, whenever you see these deals on land that just are too good to be true, never buy them without a thorough research of the land, a history, um, uh, you know, checking into the, the liens against it, checking into uh, back tax against it. When you see land that cheap, let's say under a thousand bucks, when you see land under a thousand dollars, the person selling it is trying to avoid any semblance of what a traditional real estate sale looks like. They don't want an appraisal. They don't want research, they don't want title, they want the person to look at it and go, all that stuff is going to cost me two, or $3,000 to do. I'm buying a $500 plot of land. I'm better off risking the $500 than spending the two or 3000 That's what they want you to say, and you say, well, maybe you can make a case for that. No, you can't, because the guy that owns that land may, may owe ten or $15,000 in taxes on it. And all he's trying to do is take his tax burden and give it to you. Or there may be a huge judgment against the land, a lien, uh, where they'll come in and say, now your 500 is gone and you are the property owner, so you inherit the lien. And maybe they can or cannot enforce it, but it's going to cause you grief. So you need to research any piece of land. I don't care if it's selling for a million dollars or a hundred dollars. Any piece of land, you need to have research on it. You need to know where the title is. You need to make sure the title's clear. You need to make sure there's no judgments or liens and there's no back taxes owed. Um, my gut is that it's one of those is part of the problem that you have with this piece of land. Because a half of an acre commercial for $500 stay to high heaven. Uh, but on the basic zoning question, no, you cannot build a single-family residence on a commercially zoned piece of land. Some pieces of land are zoned commercial or residential, in which case you could. A lot of times it's not hard to get a zoning change. So if you found a commercial piece of land, it was okay. It was just in a weird place, and it was zoned commercial for the wrong reason, and it's a pain in the ass. The guy wants to dump it. He's going to do it cheap. If you check with local zone, the local zoning board and say, hey, I'll buy this if you'll allow me to convert it to residential, and I'll, you know, I'll become a taxpayer in your area, and I'll make it into something decent, 
But you ask that question and get a commitment before you do it, not after. So let's go ahead and take the next question. That was a good one. There's a question about my nemesis this year, the dreaded squash vine borer grub. Guy emails me and he says, hey, look, I've got grubs not just in my vines. I've got them in my squash. And, uh, yeah, they'll do that, too. Uh, when enough of their buddies are occupying enough of the squash vine that they don't have any more room or food, they'll go into the squash itself. And uh, he said, this year, basically, I've just, like, cut off the pieces of squash with the grubs in them and eat the rest. And I guess that's okay, but how do I prevent them next year? Um, I used Neem quite a bit this year, and Neem did not seem to control the squash vine borers at all. Now, I don't know if I used it in sufficient frequency. I got kind of lazy this summer at some point, so I've had a very busy summer. Um, so maybe I should have, if I did it every single two weeks, maybe it would have worked. But it seemed like I did it enough, and even when I was doing it with a high frequency, it didn't control them. It controlled almost everything else that I had a problem with, except the squash vine borers. Um, next year, I'm going to use DE or Dimitatious Earth. Um, I'm not a big fan of DE because I don't like to apply it. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a pain in the butt, as far as I'm concerned, to go out there and spread this dusty stuff around it. I just don't like it. But I'm going to use it, especially on squash. DE will work uh, because DE is basically ground up fossilized shell-based animal life, skeletons from the ocean floor. And uh, what it does is it gets in the exoskeleton of an insect, and it's almost like you inhaling volcanic ash and getting it into your lungs and having it start to cut away at the inside of your lungs while it's cutting away at the insect's exoskeleton. And it's also very dry. And it's also very absorbent, so it actually absorbs their bodily fluids and dehydrates them and kills them. It'll work on the squash bug, therefore reduce the amount of vine borers. And if the vine borer, when he's little, crawls through it, it's going to take him out too. So I'm going to use DE next year. There's also a type of beneficial nematode uh, marketed under the uh, trade name Grubaway. And those are supposed to be dynamite on any kind of grub, including uh, cornworms and squash worms. And what they say to do with it uh, for your squash vine borer problems, and getting in the vines is a much bigger problem than in the fruit, is to put this stuff in a syringe and actually inject these little nematodes into the vine of your squash, and they won't do any harm there. But whenever a vine borer takes up residence, they'll just eat them. They'll just tear them apart and eat him, like a parasite, which is what they are. They're a parasite on grubs. So I'm going to try both of those methods next year. I've also heard of people that keep them out of the vines, wrapping aluminum foil from, like, the base of the vine, right where it goes into the ground, up to about a foot high. And I've heard that they've had good results with that as well. But vine borers are a big problem this year, uh, and they will get you squashed. The other thing the guy asked is, how do they get in there? Do the... Uh, do the mother squash, you know, vine borer bugs lay eggs on the surface, or do they inject them into the squash or the vine? They don't inject them. They lay them on the surface. Usually you'll see the eggs, if you look for them, across the bottom of your squash vine. You'll see little brown dots, and those are the eggs. And once they hatch, they crawl and they go wherever, and they go, you know, they, they bore their way inside. It's a little tiny, almost impossible to see worm. And if you see my video on YouTube of them, they get pretty large. They get about as big around as the tip of your pinky finger. Uh, they'll get about an inch long, and they'll just eat out everything that they can. Um, they don't generally seem to do well once they're in the fruit. They don't seem to have very good survival rates once they're in the fruit. They don't seem to eat a lot of the fruit. They seem to really want to go to the vine, and I think they go to the fruit when that didn't work out for them, or maybe by mistake. 
Uh, or maybe there's another type of grub that gets into squash that's not a vine borer. If so, I don't know if anything I told you will help today, but I don't know of that animal. I've checked and I can't find anything other than squash vine borer that's a grub problem to do with uh, winter and summer squash. So uh, let's go on to the next question. Another political one, guys. And remember, I'm only as political as you ask me to be. Um, says, what do you think, Jack, of local social programs versus federal ones? In other words, let's say a local town, a local government decides that we have a problem with people that have lost jobs and are in danger of becoming homeless, and we're going to set up you know, a, food, a food bank, food shelter. And what we're going to do is those people maybe don't live here, but they can come down here and eat a meal or two a day, and that will take pressure off of their finances and help them get back on their feet, that type of thing, or even a local homeless shelter or, or what have you. What do I think of that? I think it's a damn sight better than a federal one or a state one. Um, I guess my, my question back would be, local will work, when is it too big? And I'll tell you, I think when it's over you know, a couple thousand people or more, maybe it's too big. That when a small town with, you know, I don't know, maybe even 10,000 people set something like that up, then it's pretty easy to make sure it's not being abused and taken advantage of and things like that. That people tend to know each other in a small town or a small, even a big city, a small neighborhood level thing in a big city of some type of social uh, relief that's provided for by the people that live there at their own discretion. That would be volunteerism. Let's say the government of that area is going to step up and make some portion of the funds that are available for that type of help, but only for the people in that area. It can be policed well. Because you know if a guy's a deadbeat, and then you have to leave yourself a way to kick deadbeat. Like, you have to have the right to refuse service for this to work. It can't be open and available to everyone. It's why, the, if whenever the government, even a little government, gets involved, it doesn't work. It would be much better for that government to go to a local church or community center or something and say, we'd like to encourage this for you. How can we help? without putting any strings on you. In other words, we're not going to give you funding, because if we give you funding, then you become accountable to us. Right? So we can't do it that way. But can we cut you a property tax break? Can we, you know, maybe make some of our resources available to you? What can we do for you to step up and fill this niche? What would it take? So can we use our... Uh, you know, our communication system with our township, our newsletters or whatever, and just simply let people know that you're willing to do this and ask private people to help you. I think it will work much better that way. The second government gets involved, you end up in a situation where when you refuse service to somebody that you should refuse service to, they go find a lawyer, and then they take it to a federal court, and then the program either gets destroyed or expanded. It's almost impossible for a government to operate any type of a social charity without it becoming a monstrosity and becoming an entitlement, and that's the problem with it. Now, if that wasn't the case, I think town-level social programs can work and should be encouraged. I just don't think they work under the current litigated society that we live in, and that's why it should always be relegated to charity. But the government can help in that, but it can only help by doing the things that it's competent to do. And the honest things that government is competent to do is to ensure transportation, ensure communication, 
and, and, and ensure defense and ensure protection. And if it did those four things and it stopped burdening people with so much tax and regulation and crap, then all these private charities would be able to do more. And you've got to let the private charity tell people you don't qualify. For whatever reason we say, you don't qualify. Because if you don't do that, again, the program becomes bloated and expansive and either collapses in on itself or becomes a, a teat to suck upon. And that's what most of these programs are. One day we'll talk about health care reform. And I'll give you five or six stories that will come from one week from my wife who works in a medical office where they treat Medicaid patients. And I'll tell you what type of people come in and what their attitude is about the free health care that they're getting from your pocket. You will have blood shooting out of your eyes when I tell you firsthand some of the things that go on every single day in that system. Let's move on from there. Guys, okay, since I have five big, beautiful oak trees on my property, and between the oak trees and the house, almost every inch of my property is shaded. Do I have any hope of growing a garden without cutting down some of my trees? The answer is probably no. Um, the only, and I, you know, you're looking at a residential lot, if five trees are completely shading it, it's probably a relatively small lot. Um, those trees are probably, if you're going to plan on selling anytime soon, going to add a tremendous amount of value to your real estate. Without knowing more, I'm very hesitant to recommend cutting any of the trees down, unless you just want to and you know why you're doing it. It sounds like you don't want to do it or you wouldn't ask the question, so I'm real hesitant to do that. So. The best thing I could suggest, maybe, is out, maybe out in like your very, very extreme of your front yard to do some container gardening. Um, or do you have any potential? What's your roof slope like, like to create a rooftop garden or a, a patio garden or something? It probably isn't doable based on the way you're describing it. So those are some things I would look at. There are some things that will grow okay in shade. Um, you can grow a lot of greens, um, like lettuces, in shade. If it gets some mottled sun, uh, but you're going to have to grow them like at the wrong time. Of the, like, the best time of year to grow lettuces starting now as it's getting cooler out, right in through the fall, uh, right up until frost, and with certain varieties right through the frost, and if you can keep you know, them from being buried in snow, right through the winter. Um, so you can, by starting them indoors where it's not too hot for them to germinate, you can probably get some things like lettuce, uh, probably Swiss chard, uh, things like that to do okay for you, and that shade will be a benefit to them as long as they get a little bit of sun. I think at least an hour of sun a day. I think you can find a little place where some sunspots are and do some gardening there. And this is why containers might be a good idea for you, because you can move them around maybe two or three times a day. I mean, that might be real monotonous, but it is some things. Or as, as the year progresses and where that spot of sunlight is moves, maybe you could go there. In the fall, you may be able, fall and winter, you may be able to do fairly well, as long as they're not like live oaks that don't lose their leaves. If they're a deciduous oak, which most oaks are that lose their leaves, you'll have sun all through the winter because those leaves aren't on there. And the canopy that's making the shade is more of the leaves than the branches. So you may be able to grow spinach, lettuce, kale, stuff like that. You may do very well from late fall into early spring. 
The caution I have for you there, though, is if you're going to do that, make sure you're starting your plants very early in the year, like now, so you have well-established plants to put into the ground once the sun becomes available, because I don't know where you live. You didn't tell me. But if it gets too cold, even if the lettuce and, and spinach and stuff will survive, it won't grow very fast unless it's already well-established. So you want to get your plants, you know, up to hand height. Uh, before it gets too cool, and, and maybe you can do some there. So that's all I got for you. The other thing to look at would be, can you create a spot by removing only one of your trees and trimming up a few of the others? I don't know. I'd have to look at the lot firsthand and make a determination there. But whether or not you're willing to cut to grow should have a lot to do with how long do you plan on being in that house. If it's less than a couple of years, don't even think about it. Make the oak trees look as best you can. Plant some ivy. Plant some things that grow well in the shade that are ornamental. Sell it to somebody else and move to a place with more space to work with if that's your plan. If you're going to stay there, then try to figure out how to make this work because there's probably a way to do it, but you're probably going to have to lose at least one of those trees. And uh, as much as I, you know, rail on trees that don't produce anything, oaks are beautiful trees. And a place with five beautiful oak trees shading the whole lot sounds gorgeous. And uh, you're going to have to make a determination uh, what you really want to do there. I'm sorry I can't be more help. That's an honest answer for you and a few ideas. And on that note, the reason I answer some of these questions is not just because I want to hear myself talk about them. It's because sometimes I don't know the answer, and you guys out there have dealt with it, and you guys do have an answer. So on any of these questions, not just that one, if you've dealt with this or you've seen somebody deal with this, go to the blog. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Look up the show, and in the show notes, comment and give suggestions as to how these issues can be handled other than the way I've answered them. Because a lot of these questions have a hell of a lot more than one answer, and your input is greatly appreciated. I guess I got the gardening bug up everybody's butt because I got another gardening question here. Guy says he lives in Kennedale, Kennedale, Texas, folks. And if you don't know where Kennedale is, it ain't far from where I live in Arlington. It's uh, just down the road a piece. It's like south between Arlington and Fort Worth and just south of there, uh, down by Mansfield and uh, uh, that area. And what he says is he wants to go ahead and plant a fall garden, but he wants to know if he's too late or if he still has time to do it. You're not too late. This is a beautiful time to garden in Texas, even if you're just putting your beds in now and you're planting right away. This could, there could not be a better time in Texas for gardening than September, October, November. It's beautiful. Now, the crops he's asked about um, are broccoli, greens, and maybe some beans. Let me make a suggestion. Broccoli, go nuts. I planted new broccoli plants as late as November last year. It was cutting broccoli in January and February. So the broccoli, no problem. Greens, go nuts, no problem. Some of your greens, though, have a hard time germinating in the heat. Now, if the temperature stays down in the 70s like it's been with all this rain, it won't be a problem. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think it's going to get warm again before it starts to cool off. As soon as this rain moves out, we're going to have these in the 90s. A lot of lettuce, spinach, things like that, when the temperature's in the 90s for much of the day, doesn't like to germinate well. You have very poor germination. Put the seeds in the ground, they just don't come up. So I would say for your greens, spinach, kales, chard, Get some little peat pots or some little plastic pots or whatever. Start them indoors in a nice air-conditioned room in the 70s, right? They'll germinate beautifully. Get them up to, uh, you know, give them about two weeks of growth until they get a couple true leaves on them, and then set them out. They'll do beautifully. The other suggestion I have for you is on beans. 
if you plant beans, especially something that's fast-growing, fast-producing, like Kentucky Wonder pole beans, they generally can produce within 50 to 60 days. We're looking at, what, September 13th or 14th today? So September, October, November 14th or 15th. A lot of times we get a frost by then in Texas. Some years we don't. You may get some beans if you plant them right now. You probably will not if you plant any kind of a summer bean. Now, if you plant fava beans, which if you wanted string beans, they're nothing like a fava bean. So I, I have no idea but if you would want that. But fava beans will do well into the frost. In fact, they are a common northern uh, crop grown in winter gardens in uh, Italy, up into places where it gets very cold and even snows. So they're a great option for a bean. If I was going to say to plant something in that world, that legume, you know, nice green, something sweet for the plate world, uh, something that stores well, can be blanched and frozen or, or, or canned or jarred or whatever, and you're going to plant it now in Texas, peas. If you plant sugar peas, snow peas, snap peas, any of the, the, the green sweet peas right now, this is a beautiful time for them. In fact, the Farmer's Almanac says the best day to plant green peas in North Texas this year is September 15th. That's two days away. That's optimum time for your peas to go into the ground. So I would substitute your bean plan for peas, and I think you'll do a lot better. I would also say spend a couple bucks and buy a little packet of Berkeley inoculate and inoculate your peas with an inoculate that's going to help them produce nitrogen for themselves in the soil. They'll do a lot better. You can generally find it at Home Depot or Lowe's. Your challenge right now locally, though, man, is can you find seeds and inoculate? Because a lot of the places, the Lowe's, the Home Depot's, and all that, like, just like, push their seeds into a storeroom or something, they're gone. I found a few places that still have them out. I picked up some seeds and some inoculum recently, so it's out there. If not, you can order it from Burpee, uh, the inoculant, or you can order your seeds from any, like I prefer Seed Savers Exchange, Seeds of Change, or Burke, Baker Creek. Again, Seed Savers Exchange, Seeds of Change, or Baker Creek are my three big seed houses I like to order from. Uh, I don't know if they offer inoculant or not. I used to use the Burpee stuff to send buy it locally, but I would get a hold of some inoculant and inoculant your peas, but go ahead this weekend should be pretty decent for it. Most of this rain will have moved out. The ground may still be really wet, but you can probably get some things done. I don't know what your prep work is going to be like there, um, but this is a great time. No, you're not too late. Here's an interesting question that shows how small the world is. A guy emails me and he says, I'm looking to buy some land, um, and I found a pretty decent deal, and I'm, I'm thinking it's a good place, but Somebody else owns the mineral rights to this land. Now, this question would be answered very differently depending on what the minerals are, how long the rights have been owned, what state you're in, what part of the country you're in, what's down there, uh, what might be down there, what type of exploration might be done. So if you're from West Texas and you're thinking how this would affect somebody buying land if they had the mineral rights to natural gas were down there, um, this is going to be a very different answer, just so you understand that. This guy... So I heard coal, and I looked, and I immediately knew what I was going to see, Pennsylvania. And that the company owns the rights to almost all the land in the area, and has owned them for over 100 years. Well, I've already emailed this guy a response, but I thought it would be interesting for you guys to hear about. Um, I, um, I smell the Reading Coal Company. Now, it might not be what he sees on the deed, 
It might be Castle Coal Company. It might be Charlie Martin Coal Company. It might be Anthracite Coal. There's all these little satellite companies that uh, most of them don't even exist anymore. The Reading Company has acquired them over the years. And the reality is there's almost no place in Pennsylvania where there is coal where you can buy land and own the mineral rights to the coal. It's almost it's almost unheard of. And if you do have mineral rights on that land, that's because there ain't none down there. And that's just how Pennsylvania is. And Pennsylvania has a long, checkered history with the coal industry. And if you want an interesting story to find out about, go Google Molly McGuire's. And you'll see the uh, somewhat murderous history of how coal miners fought for rights in the state of Pennsylvania. And you'll also see that the Molly Maguires were this group that operated after the Civil War around the 1880s, and this big trial came up, and several, several of them were sentenced to death, and that was kind of the end. Let me tell you from firsthand experience, the Molly Maguires didn't go away in the coal region until about the 1940s, right around World War II. They were still operating, and they were operating in a totally different way because they didn't want to get executed again. All right? There's a lot of problems with that coal industry up there, and part of it was this monopoly by a few coal companies of owning the rights to everything where no man can go out and set up a mining operation for coal. It, there had to be a tribute paid in one form or another to Reading. So that's what made it that way. So what that means is you can't not buy land just because a Reading company or one of their subsidiaries or some non-existing company has the coal rights to it. Um, I've never heard of anybody's house being bulldozed to put a strip mine in in Pennsylvania. I've heard of one in the Schuylkill County area, which is very coal-rich, where some people were moved out, but it was more of an imminent domain thing. Even though the company already had the rights to the coal, they had to pay these people well more than their property was worth, which still sucks. But I've never heard of just, like, we have access, we're going to dig a hole here. Um, and if they do, that Molly McGuire thing may come back with a vengeance. You want to see a revolt, try pushing people out of these houses that they've had. In their, because a lot of those houses have been in families for 100 years up there. So I don't think it's that big of a threat in that area, especially when there's no active mining going on. Most of that type of coal mining has been done in that state. Um, the, the, the coal's been extracted. A lot of it's been extracted by shaft mines. You might look around and say, there's no coal mines in my area. Well, they might have mined the coal under your house already 100 years ago uh, from a shaft mine a half a mile away. They did that back then, believe it or not. And then the strip mining that's been done is awful, but it's really hard for them to get away with doing a lot of strip mining anymore. It's in very specific areas. Uh, it costs them a lot more to strip mine today because of regulations, so they're not as quick to do it. I wouldn't worry about it there. But I would say with mineral rights, you always have to do, and this is why I bring this up today, a lot of research on what do mineral rights mean in your state? What specific type of rights does the other person own? Who owns those rights? Are they open to selling them back to you? You contacted them before you bought the property and said, look, I'm interested in this property. I'm concerned about the fact that you own the mineral rights. Do you plan to exercise your right over the minerals? They're always going to say no. Well, if you're not, then they're worthless to you. How about you sell them back to me? Can we get a contract? Can I buy an option to repurchase after completion of the land sale? See if they're open to that. That'll tell you what their intentions are. Find out some places that they have rights, they can go get the stuff. Some places, there's two types of rights. And I've gotten people beating me over the head for saying this, but it's true, folks. I'm sorry. There's places where this is very much the case. The person may have the rights to the minerals, but they don't have a right to access the surface. They would have to pay for surface access. Or they can get surface access somewhere and tunnel underneath and extract the minerals. 
right? But they can't just come on your property and start extracting. Some places, it's exactly what it means. If I own the rights to the gas on your ranch, you have to let me in. I can set up a drill right in the middle of your ranch, and you can't stop me. Some places, I have to pay you for that, but what I have to pay you is limited and set in stone, sort of. There's all different types of situations you end up with here. Somebody else owning mineral rights on property does not mean you shouldn't buy it, but it does mean you should find out exactly what the, 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 the scope and depth of those rights are, who owns them, what they intend to do with them. You're going to see a lot of that in North Texas now because what's happened is a homeowner like me that owns this little residential lot owned my mineral rights. And a gas company came in and wanted to get the gas out of our neighborhood. Well, we signed a deed, and we leased those mineral rights to the gas company. And uh, the gas company is currently extracting gas, and we get royalty checks for that. Now, if I sell my house while I'm in the middle of collecting royalties, I'm not going to sell you the mineral rights. Now, you have absolutely no fear that, that... I'm going to come back onto that property, dig a hole in the middle of the yard, extract minerals. It doesn't even make any sense. That's not the way you get natural gas out of the ground. You wouldn't be able to set the drill up in somebody's backyard anyway. These guys are drilling from over a mile away where there's a big enough field to set up and run a drill within the regulation. So it's not that big of a concern here. And I guarantee you all these residential homes, when people sell them, they're going to want to hang on to the mineral rights. So, it's, it's again, this is not like... West Texas and somebody owning the mineral rights on a 30,000-acre ranch, you're going to buy the 30,000-acre ranch. It's different scenarios. So always dig deeper. Always find out more. Never assume anything. And if you think something can be done after purchase, verify it and get it in writing and get it signed off on and get a contract for it before purchasing the land. If that person won't do it with you before land purchase, they ain't going to do it after. And there is, you can do an option on anything which means we could sign a contract. Let's say you own mineral rights to this piece of land. I want you to say, yeah, I'll sell them to you, but you have to own the land to buy them. I'm not going to sell them to anybody but the landowner. Fine. Let me purchase an option, $250 option, to purchase the mineral rights for a specific price, whatever that may be, between now and whatever. And if I want to purchase, you have to honor the option. Legal contract, legal option to buy, put that in place, and it's you know, contingent upon me becoming the property owner. Fine. They say no, it ain't going to happen, folks. And there's a reason they're holding on to the rights, and you're gambling at that point. So let's go ahead and take another question. We beat that one up long enough. Non-survival question, definitely, here, other than, you know, having a business of your own is a good thing. Person says, what advice would I give to somebody starting up a podcast uh, to be on prepping and survivalism like I do or just anything? What, what would I say? I would say, first of all, don't pick an industry or a niche because you think it's hot, because you think it's something that people are interested in, because you think it's going to be successful by because of what it is. You could go into the hottest niche in the world, and if you don't deliver what people want, you're not going to have success. In other words, you could do a podcast on golf. Now, people would say, well, golf is saturated, blah, 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 whatever. I'll tell you what, golf is the number one sport in the world for people with money. It is a hot market. It's a great place to have a product in. Uh, there's tremendous support for it. There's a hell of a lot more golfers out there than there are preppers. But if you don't do a good show, it won't matter. So don't pick based on that. Pick based on your passion. What are you most passionate about? What do you most love? That's what you do your podcast on. I, 
I don't care if, like, you love ALF from the 80s. It's stupid sitcom. Do an ALF podcast. I don't care what it is. But you better love it. You better have passion for it. You better believe in it. And you better have specialized knowledge in it. It's not a learn-as-you-go. You will learn-as-you-go. But you better have a bunch of material inside you already you just need to pull out and pull out with passion and delivery. If you do that, you're going to have success no matter what your podcast is about because you'll attract other people that have that same passion. Number two, don't even think about making money. Don't think about making money for at least six months. If you figure out how to do it sooner, fine. But in the beginning, all you need to focus on is doing a really great show with really great content with a really high frequency. For me, that's every day. I think that if you don't do it every day, it's never going to be as successful as it could be. But if you want to do a weekly show, do a weekly show. Don't do anything less. Absolutely nothing less than a weekly show. Part of it is people aren't going to follow you and believe in you until you have a track record. When people showed up at my show, and it was new, but there were 30 episodes, and I was still going. And there was a new one every day. People thought, well, I can stay in with this guy because he's committed. He's going to deliver. And when I started looking for sponsors and supporting memberships and ways to put some money into the equation, I had already demonstrated my commitment to my audience and to any potential sponsor. This show will be here. It will be here every day. It's not going away. So the reason I'm big on a daily frequency is that you will establish that faster. In other words, if for five weeks you do a show a week, you've done five shows. If I look at five shows, how committed are you at that point? Have you demonstrated the ability to keep content fresh and new and changing with five shows? Probably not. But in the same five weeks, if you do 25 shows, I have a lot more to base my opinion of you on as a listener, as a sponsor, as a supporter, as anything. Take that out to 10 weeks. In 10 weeks, you've done 10 shows. Eh, all right, I'm starting to get on board with you. A weekly, a day, everyday show, you've done 50. How many you've done 50 shows, you've established yourself. People can go back and listen to a tremendous amount of history on you. So you'll get there in a year doing a weekly show with 50, or you can get there in, you know, 10 weeks. So you tell me how fast you want to go. But the more and the higher the frequency, the better. And the frequency must be uniform. If you do it every day, it's easy. My show's Monday through Friday. That's easy to keep uniform. But what I'm saying is if you do a weekly show and you publish it on Wednesday, every freaking Wednesday there better be a show. If there isn't, you're not going to have the audience's loyalty because you haven't demonstrated your commitment to them. They don't know what they can expect from you. Oh, you do a show sometime during the week, right? So it's got to be consistent and a high frequency. And anything less than a week is just not worth doing. You didn't want a month, forget it. Go be a guest on somebody's show. Because once a month is just not sufficient. Uh, the next one is don't get too technically involved. Folks, I do this show with a Sony IDP recorder. They sell for 30 or 40 bucks. They do it with an old Plantronics headset. I think I paid 20 bucks for it like three or four years ago. And I do it in a car. And, if I, and when, I, when I started, I didn't even have this recorder. I had like a stupid little video camera. I didn't even have a microphone. And if you go listen to episode one of the Survival Podcast, the, the, the content is terrible. But the passion was there, the commitment was there, the desire was there, and the content was there. Focus on those. The hell with audio quality to a degree. Now, I've worked hard to make it as good as I can. But it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be the old commercial. You can hear a pin drop, right? 
sprint in the days of landline phones. You can hear a pin. It's never going to be that good. Even when I go into a studio model like I did last week, it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. I don't have the money to make it perfect. Maybe someday I'll go to it a little bit more. But in the beginning, just make sure that people can hear you, understand you, and you articulate your passion, desire, and help, etc. Um, next, I would say... Make sure you have a blog. Don't just use somebody else's platform. Uh, I recommend WordPress and a plugin called PodPress. Um, using those two together, you can put a podcast together fairly easy. Once you get one or two episodes, make sure you get approved to be in iTunes. Without iTunes, I wouldn't have 30 to 40 percent of my subscribers. About 30 percent of them, on an average, come from iTunes, and I figure another 10 percent are from people that tell people what the person telling originally found out on iTunes. So you've got to get yourself into iTunes. Um, make your show long. I don't care what people say. Oh, I want a five-minute show. That's all I want. I get emails from people. I wish your show was shorter. Hey, you know what? I have a lot of information to give you. You can fast-forward through a podcast. You can skip segments you don't like. Make your show at least 30 minutes long. Your audience deserves 30 minutes of your time if you want them to listen to you. Don't go video. Not initially. Unless you have everything you need and you know how to do it, the hell with video. And I'll tell you what, I don't think video is the real future of podcasting anyway. I think what we'll see is video turn into kind of like an uh, online version of on-demand television, and that'll be done via podcast because of subscriptions and things like that. But I don't think it's what most of the podcast audience wants. They want to work and listen to you. They want to get in the car and plug their iPod into their jack. They want to, the podcast audiences are more interested and maximizing their time and taking wasted time, like doing mindless work at a desk or driving in a car and turning it into useful time by gaining information and knowledge about subjects they can't find through other mediums. Right? So it's not they want to sit down in front of a computer and watch an hour of video every day of you. So I think audio is the way to go. And that's the best base level advice I can give you, but the big one is don't ask anybody for a dime for three to six months. And if somebody offers it to you, don't take it. And I am an example of that. I had people volunteering to give this show money, and I refused to take any of it until I created the Members Brigade. That was February that I created the Members Brigade. February of this year. I started the show in June of last year. So June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, it's nine months. Nine months before I took a penny. And there was a reason. I gave my commitment first. And it's a long road, but it's the right road. You asked, that's the answer that I have for you. And I believe that anybody can do a great podcast today if you'll follow that outline, that example. Maybe one day I'll put together like an e-product kind of on the other world of, that I, I operated on Internet marketing on how to develop a podcast. But right now I don't have time for it because I have too much of a time commitment to my audience and i got to make sure I deliver. Awesome question here. person works for a fairly sizable company, I can tell just by the structure, and says that they try to get their business on board with some level of disaster planning. Figure flu is a good place to start. Let's put together a disaster Master plan for flu for the company. How do I get them on board? I talk to managers. Um, what I get from them is it won't happen, right? Then we don't need to worry about it. It's just not going to happen. It's not that big a deal. Go back to your job. Or, yeah, it'd be great if we did, but they don't. The, the, the manager doesn't want to take it up any level to senior management. All right. Now, you these costs. You got to decide how much of a pain in the ass of your own company you're willing to be to get something you want done. 
But what I would personally do is I would go to pandemicflu.gov. There's a complete disaster plan outline on pandemicflu.gov for companies. And I know some of you guys don't trust the government. Folks, I don't either. But this disaster plan is a good one. I've read it. I've implemented it. Okay, at my own office. It's a good plan. So just so I don't trust the source doesn't mean I don't look at the plan, read the plan, trust the plan, and say, I can use this plan for me personally. All right? I would go there. I would download the outline to that plan. I would take that documentation to management, and I would say, look, this is what the federal government is suggesting we do right now. I'm bringing it up as a concern. And if you, if you can somehow push it into HR that way, HR people are freaking anal. And when they see something on an official form and the government says they're supposed to do it, they get really concerned about it. And that little anal nature that makes them annoying but good at their job becomes an advantage to someone trying to get something done. Now it's almost like, boy, we really are supposed to do this. And you can get that done. Now, why do I think the flu side is a great way to do it? It's in the news right now. Companies have legitimate concerns about it, even if it's the non-event that I'm saying it's going to be. And I'm not saying, and there's somebody wants me to do a show on it soon, and I will do a show this week on the flu. I think there's going to be a big event of the flu, but the disease itself is going to be a non-event. No, I don't think we're going to see people dying, and we're not going to see 19, you know, the 1918 Spanish flu and you know, gymnasium sent up with corpses. None of that. That's not coming. That's not happening. That's not what this flu is all about. But even just a high infection rate and a high number of people out of a business during the flu season, especially if it kind of rolls through like we have, we have a company with 1,000 people, 50 are out this week. They're back, but next week 50 more are out, and the next week 100 are out. And going through a month-long period like that is tough on a business. So they need to get this done. So that's why I think it's a great place to start. The reason I think it's beautiful that this opportunity is here to get flu disaster plans into a business, if you get a flu disaster plan into a business, you have a pretty much general disaster plan into a business. If you can get that established because of disaster commonality, in other words, in a different disaster, a totally different disaster, we still deal with the same thing, people not being able to get to work. Can we make payroll? Can we serve our customers? All of these questions you have to answer to deal with the flu pandemic, any type of natural disaster makes you ask the same questions. Now, could you make a better disaster plan for an earthquake or a trucker strike? Sure. But if you have at least that in place, the business can fall back to it in the event of any disaster, which, by the way, is another way to sell it. Look, we do this then we're insured against any other thing that you don't start giving them examples because they'll start arguing the examples with you, right? Say anything else that could go wrong. I don't know what else could go wrong, but surely something could go wrong. We can have some kind of interruption to our supply or, or some kind of reason people can't get to work, and we really should have a plan for what to do. Here's an outline from the government. Can we get this to HR? Right? If you do that, you're going to have a much better chance of getting kind of closing that deal and getting that plan in place. And I think it's a great opportunity and a great time to bring that to people's attention while they're still concerned. Because if we get through it, they're not going to be concerned anymore. They'll forget. But if you get the documentation in place, the plan in place, then you're going to have a blueprint for the future if anything goes wrong. So kudos to you for concerning yourself. I think they should make you employee of the month if you guys have that for taking the time to put your neck out there and do it. But be careful how hard you push and how big of a pain in the ass you become. That's the approach I would personally take. Uh, let's go ahead and take the last question of the day. Uh, guys, married? 
Got a fiance. I think same guy asked the last asked the last question too. Is, by the way, he asked me two questions here, and they're both great. Uh, but his fiance believes in Al Gore's you know global warming theory and saving polar bears, and and uh, the, the ice caps are going to melt, and the, the tailpipe is going to kill the planet, and it doesn't matter that global warming on Mars is the exact same profile as it does. Um, on 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 uh, Earth, and that the two are simultaneous, and there's no you know cars on Mars or what have you. She believes this stuff, right? So she wants to do solar and wind and better energy efficiency and all of that, but she wants to do it to save the planet. He wants to do it for self-reliance. Okay? He said. He also another example is he wants to store food in case something goes wrong. She's sold on food stores, but she's sold on it from a financial opportunity buy situation. In other words. We have food reserves. Um, I can go to the store and not buy something this week because it's not on sale. So do I think the ends justify the means there? Would, if I were him, what I would argue. Dude, you do not argue with your spouse when you don't have to to get what you want. All right? So do I think overall it's important? And this is a good question because of this. Overall, is it important for us to keep sounding the bell? Global warming made by the tailpipe is a lie designed to entomb us into a slavery system of global taxation. I absolutely think that should continue to be done. That's why I always say when I talk about, people say, why do you have to always justify against, I'm not trying to save the polar bears? Because I think it's important when we're talking at a national level uh, or even any kind of a large level to, to state that, look, this is not about you know global warming. It's about independence. With your wife in your house, are you crazy? Shut up. Put the solar panels in, numbskull. Do it. Do it now. You know, get them in. You can worry about justifying you know the fact that you think the global warming is a scam later. Right? You can worry about kind of weaning her off of this pablum that these people are feeding her later. Right now, take the opportunity for independence. She's on board with storing food. I don't care why. And I'll tell you what, while I disagree with the Al Gore nonsense, her concept of we can save a lot of money by storing food is absolutely true. It's one of the tenets that I teach about food storage. I wrote a whole article with one segment of it but completely dedicated to how much money you can save. So the food thing, she's not even wrong. The food thing, embrace, go nuts with it, and just, you know, as you build up your stock, say, well, honey, isn't it great that if something went wrong, not only are we saving money, but the food's here. That is, as the food bank builds up, and you start to look at it, and you realize that you have that self-sufficiency, it'll take over. The same thing with the Al Gore stuff. You know what? The first time you have a power outage, after you have some level of redundancy backup, See some solar panels, and this guy mentioned a wind generator. Uh, make sure you're doing batteries with it, so it's not just grid type, right? So tell her, I don't care what reason, you've got to have batteries in this system. So, hey, just if the power goes out, you know, we have some redundancy. Maybe you can only run 25% of the house under that situation, but at least you can, right? That's an easy sale, but you're already doing it. But, but the Al Gore stuff, dude, don't argue with your wife about that, you know? If you want, if you want, in fact, don't even talk about it until you get the system installed. Don't blow it because of an argument. Don't ruin your marriage over an argument that's not going to matter. Um, but long term, I might do something like print out the Global Warming Skeptics Handbook and just say, "Would you read this? I found it interesting." Uh, let people find the information for themselves in most instances, especially when your relationship is close and nothing's closer than husband and wife. Right? She won't listen to you, dude. She might listen to me. 
right? But she will not listen to you. And she'll only listen to me if you don't tell her to listen to me about the subject. If you say, hey, this guy's show's pretty cool, listen to it, she might one day tune into a show, hear me talk about global warming, maybe listen a little bit. She'll never listen to you because a prophet has no honor in his own country. My wife doesn't listen to me, folks. You guys listen to me every day. She doesn't listen. Right? I told her plenty of times, this is why I can't work with you. You won't listen to me. I tell you I want something done a certain way. You won't do it that way. Only because I said to. Right? So your wife's not going to listen to you about something like that. Let it go. And in your case, on a small level, the ends justify the means. I don't think the ends justify the means at a national level, at a governmental level, because of where it leads to. In other words, in your house, if you guys put in a solar array and she thinks the polar bears are going to be safer, it doesn't really matter. Okay, But the government's not trying to get us to put solar panels in, as much as you think they are. That's not what they want. They want power companies to do solar and wind and sell you the power so they can continue to tax it. See, the ends justify the means at the individual level because as you create independence from the electrical system, you create independence from the taxation system. They pass cap and trade, you don't care. right? If you put enough of your own power generation in, maybe one day you go out there and throw the switch and cut yourself off the grid altogether. That's not what the government wants. That's why those two worlds are different. That's why ends justifying needs are not the same thing there. What the government wants is a huge new monstrosity of taxation because they're scared shitless, honestly. This is about gasoline, new cars, better fuel economy, and less gas being used. They said the government's wanted that for years. No, they don't. Do you know how much money they make on motor fuels taxes? It is one of the primary sources of income the government has, and it's being jeopardized by people driving smarter, driving less, driving more fuel efficient. They're looking to put in more toll roads to subsidize that, but they'll never get enough of that done as things begin to continually change. So they have to create a taxation system based on energy consumption that's bigger than the one that already exists so they can keep making government bigger. That's why it matters there. It doesn't matter in your house. Let it go. Put the solar panels in and shut up like a good husband. All right. Now, on that note, I think I'll sign off. I know this is a long one, but it was pouring rain today on the way in, so I moved kind of slow. We had a lot to cover. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. And keep sending me your questions. I'll keep doing everything I can to make this show better for you. Hopefully today was a good show. Tomorrow I'm going to do that show on pandemic flu. I'm going to tell you what I think is going to happen, what I think the big dangers are, the things I think we need to worry about, the I don't think we need to worry about uh, where things are going. I'm going to give you some inside information from a guy that has a wife who is a nurse who has people coming in with flu-like symptoms and tell you after all the hype what the state of Texas actually is or is not doing now in regard to swine flu. But you'll have to tune in tomorrow to find out what that is. And with that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if time gets up or even if it. You can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent